This is ADH-TV, I'm David Flint, and the programme is Save the Nation, produced by Charlie Noble. My guest today, and I'm delighted to have him, is uh, David Stevens, who for the last uh, 30 years has been involved in major strategy and policy reform projects for both public and private sector clients across the globe. He worked for Prime Minister Howard in the 90s, and uh, he's a lifelong liberal, and he has edited a marvellous book, a fascinating book, called Dignity and Prosperity, The Future of Liberal Australia. And it's published by Connor Court, and uh, it, uh, this will be, a, a notice will be certainly at the end of the program where you will be advised how you can acquire a copy of this really excellent book. David, welcome to ADH. Thank you very much, David. It's a great pleasure to be with you. And thank you for spending the time with us. Now, uh, not so long ago, the theme of the commentariat was quite clear in relation to the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party had, according to many in the commentariat, the Liberal Party had lost it. It had lost the young people and the women and uh, they'd lost the teal electorates and uh, it was dying, it would never come back. The Liberal Party was finished. Has that all been changed by The Voice? Well, I think The Voice is a huge wake-up call to, to the left in the commentariat. Um, you will see in a number of the chapters of the book, from John Howard to David Kemp to Richard Alston, um, that we often discussed this sort of group identity, neo-Marxist left-wing politics that seems to have dominated the new class in Australia. And I think the voice was the epitome of that. Um, and the repudiation last weekend and, and the overwhelming repudiation of the voice, I think should be a real wake-up call because it really does subscribe to the classic, it means Australians do continue to subscribe to the classic liberal values of equality of citizenship dignity and respect to all Australians equally. Um, and that's one of the key tenets that uh, comes out in the book, and that's why we actually use the word dignity as well as prosperity to highlight that dignity only comes through a liberal approach to individuals, to empowering, engaging and respecting their individual agency. Um, and the great Jacinta Price, um, in many of her conversations advocating against the voice, made that very clear. Um, that uh, that was going to deny individual Aborigines their own agency. And, I, and that's a highly liberal concept, and I'm glad Australians have seen through it. I noticed that at the very front of the book you have a, a quote from de Tocqueville, and you say that uh, democracy and socialism have nothing in common but one word, equality. But notice the difference. While democracy seeks equality in liberty, Socialism seeks equality in the restraint and socialism is a real danger. Restraint and servitude, you say, or rather de Tocqueville says. Why are you yes. telling us about uh, socialism? Why? Um, because the socialism has been on a long march and um, I also quote Sir Robert Menzies uh, after he left office uh, in the book where he said in 1967, the great challenge to liberalism is socialism. Uh, and I dare say that challenge is as strong, if not stronger today, than it was in 1967 um, because socialism is very much on the march. Group identity politics, the new form of class divide, uh, the impact of big government and big unions and big business and big tech uh, is all a very statist socialist approach to organising both economic affairs but also social affairs and cultural affairs in this country. And at the heart of that is, is Marxism, which is where socialism derives itself. And I think we need to start calling it out for what it is. Uh, this is not some sort of soft centrism. It is actually a very heavily socialist Marxist-oriented agenda that the left has been pursuing in this country. Uh, and whether it's interference in 
property markets, whether it's interference in gas markets, whether it's the forced acquisition of a host, private hospital in Canberra recently. Uh, there are numerous examples just in the last 12 months, the attempt to control speech through the misinformation, uh, highly um, at wrongly named concept, uh, Ministry of Truth uh, <laughs> approach. These things are all socialism and driven by a socialist agenda, and I think we need to call it out for what it is. And uh, I suppose you could add to that list of various big, like big business and so on, big sport, which seems to be going down the same path, and also big tech, which I noticed uh, Peter Credlin in, uh, in The Australian points out, uh, did censor her during the voice debates, even when she was just quoting directly from the full Uluru Statement. Uh, absolutely. You know, the, the antithesis, as you would appreciate, of liberalism is vested powerful interests. You know, invested powerful interests seek to look after themselves and they don't care about the individual. They don't seek to represent the individual. They seek to rep their own special interests. And unfortunately, in this country, big government, big unions, big business, and as you say, big sport um, are now multi-billion dollar self-interested organisations that seek to perpetuate their own power uh, and their own profitability and, and the like. And um, I think that's very sad. And clearly that's why Menzies formed the Liberal Party originally. As he said, I don't want to be here as a voice for the powerful, for the vested interests. They can speak for themselves. You know, the unions control the Labor Party, so they already have a major political force. But the Liberal Party is here to stand up for the forgotten people, as he called them, the small person, you know, the individual, the family with children who are trying to struggle to pay their bills, to buy a home, to educate their kids, the retirees who want to just have a, a peaceful, quiet life but not have all of their hard work taken away from them, the small businesses and the tradies and the subcontractors and, the, you know, these new entrepreneurs who, who just want government to let them have a go. Take the risk, uh, be responsible for themselves. Uh, and also I might add that the civic organisations who are the voluntary bodies who come together for a cause like you have done with the Australians for Constitutional Monarchy or for other charitable bodies who come together to do good together um, and they don't seek um, the government to tell them what to do. Uh, they're a grassroots, bottom-up type approach and, and that's, of course, what socialism doesn't like. It doesn't like bottom-up, it likes top-down. And we see that around the world in some of our authoritarian regimes, but we also see it increasingly in our own country through these big, vested, powerful interests seeking to impose their views on everybody else. This uh, form of Marxism, socialism, which seems to be coming in everywhere in the country through this march through the institutions, is different from, although it's encouraged by, uh, for example, Beijing, a lot of the dogmas, the curious dogmas that are coming in, for example, about so-called gender fluidity, a lot of these dogmas would not be tolerated for a moment in the country where the communists are in power, but they encourage it, I suspect, in the West because it weakens, it significantly weakens the West. What, what is the relationship between these two forms of socialism or communism, if you will? Well, as we know, and it's not that long ago, I know for younger people they don't know what the Cold War was and they, they lack an appreciation of, uh, of the Soviet influence and the oppressive nature of the Soviets' control over Eastern Europe, for instance. Um, but if you talk to older Eastern European migrants to Australia, they like to remind young people uh, on a regular basis, we know what socialism and communism is like when you let it really take over, and it is not a pleasant place to be. <laughs> uh, we did, And we see that today. Um, you know, we, we are fortunate that liberal democracies are so open, but they are also the choice, the place of choice. We, we don't see people wanting to flee the West to go and live in these autocratic communist socialist uh, regimes. In fact, we see the opposite. And I think that's uh, the best indication. You know, if all of the lovies on the left 
are so endeared to the Chinese Communist Party or to the, the statist approach of, of Stalinist, now Putinist Russia, well, why don't they go there? Why aren't they packing their things and heading off uh, and becoming great supporters and thriving in those socialist Marxist states? But they don't. It's always one-way traffic the other way. Well, you're absolutely right. And the right left, there, therefore, seek to undermine us. Well, one of the things which I find curious is that people push these views, but they don't seem to like to apply them in their own lives. For example, there are very strong views about climate change, man-made climate change and the need to decarbonize, meaning reduce the amount of CO2 emissions. But some of the people who pronounce this go to uh, some of these conferences where these matters are discussed, they go there in private jets or government planes and they seem to have uh, no embarrassment at all in doing precisely what they're calling upon the rest of the world not to do. Well, you're absolutely right. It's long been my view that the, the best indicator of, of the, the trendy left is hypocrisy. Um, and uh, we can go and see that uh, at play, and we used to see that in the way the Politburo used to run the Soviet Union. We see that now with the elites today. You know, uh, it's becoming more and more so that the richest, most highly educated, highly paid people in this country ascribe to uh, all of these causes, these left-wing causes, but they do so in a completely, as you said, hypocritical way. We don't see them cutting their consumption. We don't see them saying, oh, well, we'll only take one international flight for the next 10 years. We don't see them saying, oh, let's cut back and let's go and eat um, grubs or crickets or things like this that the World uh, Economic Forums talk about. Talk about Why don't we start eating more insects? Uh, you don't see them reducing the size of their enormous energy-consuming homes. You don't see them cutting back on not having one electric vehicle, but they often have three or four cars, one of which can be an electric vehicle just to pop around to the shops uh, and the like. So it is very clear, and you're right, that the left have always been, not just now, but they have always been at the height of hypocrisy. It's do as I say, not as I do. Um, and that's been the case for a very, very long time, David. The cover of your book, Dignity and Prosperity, contains two photographs, one of Sir Robert Menzies, one of John Howard. Why is it that the leadership of the Liberal Party seems to usually decline significantly when one of these great leaders stands down? Well, that's interesting. There's also a third part that you may not have missed, which is tucked in here, a third photo, which is the Australian flag uh, yes. as well, David. So uh, don't forget the Australian flag because we should be proud of our nation and that's uh, that's also on the front cover with our two great, our two greatest prime ministers, I would say, in, in since Australia became a nation. I believe we've only had two great prime ministers and, uh, and their greatness is there because not only did they make a huge change at the time, often I might add against what the trendy direction of the country was, uh, both in Australia and overseas. You know, Menzies stood up against socialism, he did, uh, during the 50s and 60s when it was writ large around the Western world. He stood against that. You know, John Howard again came to office and he stood against uh, all the left-wing uh, causes that had been promoted by the previous government, especially by Paul Keating. And he gave people pride in their nation. He made the country prosperous. Um, he made the country dignified and he treated everybody the same. You know, John Howard and Robert Menzies were not there at the beck and call of the rich and powerful to do deals. They didn't bring people into their office for summits or accords <laughs> to decide how the nation was going to operate. They basically said, no, no, we'll let people do that. <laughs> they can make choices for themselves. Uh, to your point about why, what happens after, I think it's a, na it's a natural thing of leadership and it's not just in politics and it's not just in Australia, that after you have a great leader, following a great leader is extremely difficult for anybody to do so. 
Um, and, and that happens in business as well. Look at the great companies of the world. Uh, either they have one great leader and then they invariably go through multiple leaders uh, thereafter. Same in politics, you know, with Margaret Thatcher. Look who followed her to run to lead the Conservative Party in Britain after she left. Ronald Reagan uh, as, as the great Republican president, probably the best Republican president that, uh, after Lincoln that the Republican Party's ever put forward. Uh, and yet everyone after has struggled to fill the shoes. Greatness is very limited, I'd have to say, and you don't get many truly great leaders in a lifetime and certainly not in a generation. Um, so I just think it's very difficult for people to fill that vacuum uh, that a great leader leaves. Uh, maybe it, we'll see one in the future soon. We've had a bit of a gap. It's now been over 15 years since John Howard was the Prime Minister. So we're probably about due to uh, for another one to come on to the scene. So I can only hope that will be the case. I do think that Tony Abbott showed all of the indications, and still does, of great leadership, but that he was undermined by his being too generous and uh, nice to a man who was obviously going to do what he could to use his position to remove him. Well, certainly um, internal rivalry can be very damaging. And um, even John Howard, even Robert Menzies, they were both brought down by their own parties at various times in their career. Certainly Menzies was, in, was he not in his early career, but uh, he, he decided he was one of the few prime ministers of Australia who actually retired rather than being brought down. Well, that's right. He's the only one in the modern era who uh, decided his own time of departure, yes. It's interesting to go back when we're looking at The Voice, for example, and the situation of the remote communities, which seems to be so tragic, and the gap. It's interesting to go back to Menzies and see what his position was. And if you go back to the original referendum, not the one that Holt put, the original referendum yes. did not contain the transfer, effective transfer of power in relation to the Aboriginal people to the Commonwealth. And I understand, in fact, it was Reg Withers who confirmed to me when he was at the Constitutional Convention that Menzies strongly opposed the granting of uh, power to legislate to the Commonwealth with respect to the Aboriginal people, his argument was it would only result in a massive and relatively useless bureaucracy in Canberra and that you could do all you wanted to do in relation to the states using the conditional grants under Section 96 of the Constitution. Is that your feeling about Menzies and the... Uh, the Indigenous people, because Menzies... That, that, is, that is my understanding. Um, and as a federalist liberal, um, I, I do think um, the Commonwealth has taught to take over too much. Uh, it has taken on too much responsibility. And if you look at that voice vote, I think the thing that really stood out is the only place that overwhelmingly supported the voice was Canberra. <laughs> So maybe they were expecting it to be a huge, big employment booster or something to the local economy. Uh, but Canberra's <laughs> not at the forefront, I'd have to say, of closing the gap. <laughs> Far from it. It's about as removed as you could get <laughs> from dealing with the real issues that the Indigenous communities uh, have. So, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in the devolution of power. Um, I, I think uh, we should rely more heavily on competitive federalism I think that's something that's dropped off completely in this country. But if you look at the United States uh, or Switzerland, which are other federal systems, they use competitive federalism a lot. And I'd like to see a lot more, for instance, service delivery um, freed up from controlling Canberra and simply be held accountable. Let's have a lot more focus on outcomes and KPIs rather than just how much money and how many bureaucrats uh, are being directed towards a particular problem. Let's focus on what they actually achieve. And I think we should do that in, in, in certainly in areas of, of Aboriginal funding, um, but whether it's to do with uh, housing policy, whether it's to do with education policy, whether it's to do with health policy, uh, even parts of social welfare reform and disabilities, 
Uh, all of those areas which we've taught to centralise, we've sought to nationalise them, we've sought to standardise them, none of them have been successful, I would argue, in terms of actually improving outcomes. I would agree. I do think that this, this standard solution to every problem, that is, you throw an enormous amount of money from the Commonwealth at it and you make everything uniform, denies the whole point of federalism, which you rightly say is a, a competitive federalism. That is the great advantage, I would have thought, of federalism. I agree. And, you know, John Roscombe in his chapter, and I know a, a lot of people on the right have, have bemoaned what's happened to our education system, uh, but John rightly points out that the, the great failing of this started, to be honest, when we introduced a national curriculum and sought to standardise at the national level education. Um, we should be devolving education. We should be encouraging not just competitive federalism at state to state to encouraging new things, but we should also be encouraging greater provision, whether it's charter schools, more creation of independent schools, more empowering of schools and school districts and school communities as to how those things operate, rather than this centralised, standardised, nationalistic approach, which has just led to the worst possible outcomes. Our education standards have gone backwards. As we've spent more and more money, we get worse and worse outcomes. And not only do we get worse and worse outcomes, but the actual purpose of education, for people to learn to learn, to learn to reason, uh, has all been diminished because the left has sought to take control of the national curriculum uh, and destroy the capacity of people to be able to have diversity. I think that one of the weaknesses in our constitution was the provision that all appointments to the High Court would be made directly by, effectively, by the federal government. So you tended to get a centralised, a centralist High Court. And I think that's been demonstrated and uh, you need only look at taxation. I think we're the only federation in the world where about 80% of all taxes is collected by the Commonwealth. They then hand over a considerable amount to the states, but on condition that it be spent in the way the Commonwealth wanted to be spent. I think a lot of our problems are, can be traced back to the influence of the High Court. Yes, yes and no. I, look, I accept the High Court has generally been pro-centralist and it's had case after case where it's done that. Um, and I'm not sure that's been the best outcome for the nation. But equally, I think the states uh, have been a partner in crime on this journey. They have been all too complicit in going along with the Commonwealth taking on all responsibility for raising the revenue, and then they can just spend it. And then they get to blame the Commonwealth all the time when they say they don't have enough money. And having been involved working for John Howard as Prime Minister when we're putting together the GST package, you remember one of the huge proposals there was to give all the money to the states and territories. So we said, we'll raise this money for you because we can only, we're the only ones of the constitutional power, but we will give it all to you. And I remember at the time, Bob Carr, who was the Labor uh, Premier, he said, well, just show me where to sign. And while I'm signing, I'm going to tell you why I'm opposed to it, because I want the money, but I'm going along with the party line that we're opposed to the GST. And since then, we've had no states show any interest in saying, OK, well, this is our tax. Why don't we do something? Why do we expand the base of the GST? and get rid of other taxes. Why don't we do something? They're not prepared to do, I'd have to say, any heavy lifting when it comes to fiscal reform in the country. They are equal partners in crime in going along with the Commonwealth, assuming almost all of the revenue-raising powers in this country. I can't remember the name of it, but isn't there within the GST a socialist provision which rewards states which are unable to provide, allegedly unable to provide the same services as a rich state, so that you you get, instead of a state getting the GST, which it, its state provided, it gets something different from that because there are way, ways in which the amounts are changed between the states. Yes, so when, when they Vertical, give you the money fiscal... up, it's subject to the... 
It's called, it's the Grants Commission um, does the allocation and the allocation is based on a, well, it's a black box concept of capacity to raise revenue as opposed to actual raising of revenue. Uh, I, I think that is long overdue for that to be reformed, quite frankly. That was a carryover from the old financial assistance grants system that used to be in place before the GST came in, where the Commonwealth just gave a bucket load of money unmarked, unearmarked to the states, and it did so on that type of approach. Uh, I, I would personally like to see, as part of greater competitive federalism, I'd like to see money redistributed to the states on a per capita basis. So the GST would simply be distributed back on a per capita basis to everybody. And then those states that choose to be more competitive, they have more competitive bases, they succeed more in other areas, um, well, they can raise their own revenue from those bases. Um, I agree. I don't think this cross-subsidisation is a very... Uh, good system, and as you say, it actually rewards bad fiscal policy. So those states that don't choose to do things still get rewarded for that, even though the ones who could be more successful get penalised. So I don't think that's a good system. Good. Could we go and look at the party now from the book? Mr Howard is yes. famous, famous for his uh, insistence that the Liberal Party is a broad church. It's neither liberal nor conservative. Is it, uh, is it do you think, too broad? Um, I actually think, David, it's not broad enough. <laughs> um, and, and what I mean by that is at the last election, over 600,000 people fled the Liberal Party, uh, not for the Teals, that was only... 60,000 people went to the Teals. 600,000 actually went to these other fringe, what they called freedom parties or other parties on the non-socialist right. Um, and when Menzies formed the Liberal Party, if you go back, he actually said we should be one party, one force of all the non-socialist parties should come together to take on socialism. The only way to defeat the socialist left is to have a unified, broad-based anti-socialist party, which is what the Liberal Party was. Obviously, he couldn't get at the time the country party on board, so he then became a coalitionist and said, well, even if you're not going to join with us as a party, we're going to always govern together. So I would actually like to see people who've gone off and they've flirted with uh, One Nation or United Australia Party or the Liberal Democrats or um, Family First or all of those parties I'd actually like to see, many of whom are former Liberal and National Party members, I might add, I'd like to see them come back to the Liberal Party. Uh, and for the broad church to not just be broadly on the left and the centre, but broadly on the right as well. Um, and I think when John Howard talks about the broad church, he's talking about not just the centre being represented, but also the centre-right. And he regularly talks about it as being the centre-right party, the, the great home of non-socialists. So I would like, I'm a great believer in the broad church, but I believe the broad church is a two-way thing. It goes both to the left and to the right of the non-socialist forces. This uh, brings me to another matter that Mr Howard talks about, and that's the implied covenant which Menzies established, it's at page 33 of your excellent book. And he says, the implied covenant was that the, the uh, parliamentary party be free to determine policy, but that the constituency party be dominant in certain fields, and in particular in choosing which electorates the party should uh, field candidates and who those candidates should be. And he says while the, while the first part of the covenant, that is the right of the parliamentary party to determine policy, he says that the other party, the other part of the covenant, that is in relation to the constituency parties, that has somewhat frayed. He uses that word frayed is that yes. part of the problem of the need for a broader party that you're talking about, the bringing in people who, who've left the party because... And I can think of a perfect example, and that's John Ruddock in New South Wales, who was a very strong supporter of the Liberal Party, but who's now in Parliament for the, uh, 
They're now called, uh, they were called the Liberal Democrats and I think they're now called the Libertarians and he was upset because of the way in which the pre-selections were controlled. Well, that is, that is absolutely true. And, I, and as part of launching this book, we've been all around the country and I've shared the stage with the great John Howard, Tony Abbott, John Anderson, Nick Minchin, uh, the Kemps, Richard Alston, uh, and, and many others of the contributors like Tom Switzer and Georgina Downer and John Roscombe and Dan Wild. Um, and often we've been asked this question, well, what's wrong with the Liberal Party? You know, you've got these great views, you've had these great people, but we don't seem to have them today. And invariably the question comes back, well, are you a member? You know, because you can have a say in who represents you if you're a member of the Liberal Party. And more often than not, I remember having a, a, this discussion with Tony Abbott and Tom Switzer in Sydney at the CIS, and Tony would say, well, are you a member? And they'd say, oh, I left because I got sick of the party. And he said, well, how, how are we going to change the party if you go and leave? If good people give up, well, then all they do is they hand the reins of the organisation to the bad people who are left. So you're not going to get rid of the bad ones if all the good ones go. And my, again, to that point, I agree completely. We need a lot more people to come back to join the party and then turn up at the pre-selections, hold those members of parliament accountable that they don't like. All those ones, for instance, who stood up and said, no, we're in favour of the voice, which I can't find a liberal reason you could actually ever advocate for unequal citizenship, i.e. the voice. So the best thing now is to turn up at the next branch meeting, the next electorate meeting, and say, well, how did you do that? Why did you do that? You know, your own constituents, your members... You don't choose to represent us. You don't choose to represent your constituents. So what was the purpose of you going off on this vanity project like Prime Minister Albanese did? Uh, and then if they don't like the answer, well, you know what? Find somebody to stand against them at pre-selection. I think far too many of our members of parliament have just become careerists and weather vanes, and they just blow in the wind with the trendy commentary. They don't want to fall out of favour with their favoured journalists or favoured news outlets or whatever it is to get their little piece along from time to time. And they're very comfortable, David. Um, it's become very comfortable for people now to have a professional career as a staffer, come advisor, come cons consultant, come member of parliament and then go the other way if needs be and all stay part of that little closed circle um, and that's the problem. We need a much broader representation, not just of members in the party, but members of the party in parliament. So I'm all in favour of renewal uh, and bringing in a much broader representation if we want to be truly a broad church. A few years ago, I got a phone call from a man and he introduced himself to me and he said he was a private detective and he said that he had been instructed by the Liberal Party to conduct an investigation into me as to whether I should remain a member of the Liberal Party. I did some checks to make sure somebody wasn't just pulling my leg and I found that he was real. So what I did was I, I decided to write about it, make, a, make fun of it, in a column in Spectator. And apparently it was then called off. But I found that extraordinary. And I understand that in some electorates, people who apply to become members of the Liberal Party are rigorously controlled as to whether they will support the existing member. These are, these are not good things, are they, about a political party? One, one, no. A political party should be free, and this, this idea that people are being policed as to what they might say uh, as to whether they should remain a member of the Liberal Party, that doesn't sound like Menzies' Liberal Party to me. No, and it doesn't, David. And I, look, I am. Uh, there has definitely been a tendency as certain vested interests have become power brokers within the party, uh, and the membership has been deliberately shrunk. Right? People have been kicked out of the party, or as you say, denied membership to join the party. Why? Because they won't toe the line. They, their power brokers feel that they won't do as they're told, or they're going to say something, or threaten something, or ch or challenge somebody. 
And therefore, they say, well, the best way to resolve that is to get rid of them. Now, you know, to my mind, that is that is the classic Marxist uh, approach to politics. And the Liberal Party is not supposed to be like that. We're not like the union movement. We don't go around threatening people. We don't go around bullying people. We don't have a test, you know, of what are your views? Um, are you loyal to this person? If not, you can't join. Um, and I think we would do much better if we stop this approach of of making ourselves small and therefore easier to control, which is what those people want to do, and we actually opened ourselves up, we had a much bigger, broader-based membership, we could maybe have much lower fees to join the party to encourage more people to join if it would cost less money, uh, and we had more events, more opportunities for people to come along. Let's debate these things. Why do people fear having a debate in a branch meeting about is this the right course of action or is this the wrong course of action? What should we believe in? What shouldn't we believe in? If we're going to, as you say, continue to hold true that our parliamentary members uh, get to decide policy, which I actually think they should, I think that makes sense. I don't like the idea of the organisation, like the Labor Party, imposing policy on elected members of parliament. Um, then why not allow free debate, though, within the party with the members to put views forward? I don't see any problem. I think it's just people are scared about losing power. And that's the problem of having too many careerists running the party. Do you think uh, the solution could well be to do what uh, happens in the United States? And that is where uh, instead of pre-selections, they hold primaries where people who are registered as supporters of a particular party then decide who the candidates will be this, I understand, was the only way that Donald Trump could ever have become the presidential candidate. He would never have been chosen by the party organisation, but he was chosen by people who declared themselves to be supporters of the Republican Party. They were Republicans and they selected him. Is that a better way of handling the question of pre-selection? Um. I know people have talked to... I think that would be a very significant change for Australia to move to a primaries system. Um, I, I do support plebiscites in pre-selections, uh, albeit I think the benefits of the plebiscite system have really not come to fruition as people hoped by opening up the number of pre-selectors, and that's partly because, as you mentioned, uh, they've sought to constrain the membership to, to limit the number of members, which is, is sad. I would rather people go through the membership approach. I think that's more consistent with the Westminster tradition uh, than uh, a plebiscite system. And I'm not sure Australians would also want to have to register in advance um, who they intend to vote for, which, of course, is what's required in most of the US states where plebiscites operate. You have to choose to go on the roll and nominate which party uh, you're proposing to vote for, albeit you don't have to vote for them, but, I mean, you, that's the way this, that system works. And I think Australians uh, would generally not be so happy with the idea of having to front up to the Electoral Commission and say, well, I'm a Liberal voter, therefore when we conduct a plebiscite, I get to participate in that plebiscite. Some parties in other countries, similar countries, also have some system whereby the party membership elects the leader, as the Conservatives do, for example. It's restricted. Yes. But uh, do you think that's a good idea or do you think it, uh, it, it's, you think it's inconsistent probably with the, the Westminster system? I do think it's inconsistent with the Westminster system. Um, and because one of the key things about our system, as you appreciate, is the Prime Minister is just one amongst many. So he might be more important than the others, but he is just one. He is an equal. He has one seat in the House of Representatives, just like everybody else has a seat in the House of Representatives. He has one vote, just like everybody else has one vote, he or she, for that matter, um, just has one vote. So they are there. And they can be removed either by their own party or by the House of Representatives voting um, against them at any time. That's the nature of the Westminster system. Uh, when you go to a direct election from outside the parliament for the leader, 
Well, then the leader is arguably carrying a different type of constituency and responsibility than all the other members of the parliament. Um, and I'm not sure that's a good idea in our system. And I also find, I think from a practical perspective, I think it's very hard to say that your leader can be endorsed by the party, but not by the members who they are in charge of. And we've seen that problem happen in Britain, of course, most recently when they went through the leadership contest when Boris Johnson stood down, you know, they elected a leader different. She lasted for a very short period of time because then her members of parliament revolted against her um, and she had to stand down and then they orchestrated it so they wouldn't have another vote. And, and that's my concern that that process, whilst in theory sounds nice, I think it makes a lot more sense for the leader of the parliamentary team to have to carry the majority support of the parliamentary members of that team. I used to think that uh, just looked at objectively the American system uh, and the, the Westminster system produced broadly the same result, but I don't think so anymore after I've seen what's been happening in the United States. I think the Westminster system runs rings around the Washington system. I think that's very true, David. I think if anybody were to put forward a republic at the moment with the idea of directly electing the president, the, the no case would have a very simple example and they'd say, you want to be like the United States? Really? Do you, and do I you, think that would put that to an end pretty quickly. <laughs> incidentally, uh, what, is, uh, what is your opinion? Do you think that uh, we will see a referendum, a second referendum on some sort of republic in the coming, uh, the coming decades? Well, decades is a long time. Perhaps, perhaps in my lifetime, perhaps, but I would have to say I think the prospect of that happening are diminishing by, by the day, as you say, as we look around, particularly what's happened in the United States. Uh, and I am a great believer that our crowned republic, we, we are a republic in, in, in nature, that's for sure, already. So we are just a crowned republic. And I think our crowned republic has worked exceptionally well. As we start the book by saying, we're one of the sixth oldest continuing democracies in the world. Now, that's pretty good for a country that only came to fruition in 1901. When we look around the rest of the world and how old some of those other countries are, and we are a very young country uh, as a nation, as a single country, and yet we are the sixth oldest continuing democracy in the world. And that's something to be incredibly proud of, and it's something that we should be celebrating uh, and seeking to preserve. Yes, we can, we can make changes to our constitution, but upending the fundamentals, which even this voice was proposing by introducing a whole new chapter of equal status, I might add, to all the others into the constitution, to equal status to the states, to the parliament, to the judiciary, uh, I think they, those sort of dangerous changes need to be taken very, very carefully and looked at very seriously before anybody considers it and changing the whole nature of our crowned republic to whether it's a directly elected republic or some other form of republican model, I think is an extremely dangerous approach and therefore I don't think it will happen for quite some time. Tony Abbott, uh, on the night of the voice referendum as the results came in, said it wasn't a no vote against the Aboriginal people. It was a no vote against a power grab. Do you think that's a, a fair estimation of what really was involved, that it was a power grab? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that, that the um, uh, Australians overwhelmingly uh, support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and they, and they want Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to succeed, to prosper, to be treated with dignity, just like all other Australians, particularly those of disadvantage in this country. Uh, that wasn't what the question was, as you and I know. Uh, what they were asked to do was to make a very radical and risky change to the Constitution, the purposes of which there was never anybody who demonstrated how inserting a new chapter in the Constitution with a highly elitist body 
representing a new power elite of Aboriginal leadership, activist leadership, how on earth that was going to actually make a difference. Nobody could come up with a single example of how that would make any difference to the most disadvantaged people in the Aboriginal communities. What they could tell you is how it would give them a greater say, much more power, the ability to block things, the ability to negotiate, uh, and if you want to use Tony Abbott's expression, a great deal of extra power invested in a very small elite number of people. Um, nobody ever explained, though, how that would actually make any difference to those people who need most on the ground. Professor Aroni of the University of Queensland, I think, had a very interesting paper towards the end of all the debates, and that was that there, would, there was an analogy with treaties. The High Court, I think, in... Uh, in one of its mistakes, decided that if the Commonwealth government, it's a government only, entered into a treaty, this gave the Commonwealth the power to legislate with respect to that treaty, even if it were clearly a state matter. And what Professor Roney says, as I understand it, is that uh, any representation by the voice any representation by the voice, and they could, it could be about anything, particularly state matters, that would then give the Commonwealth the power to legislate in that area. That seemed to me to be an yes. extraordinary increase in power. Yes, no, he did. And Professor Aroni, to his great credit, had made three major contributions throughout the, the voice period. So first was uh, his submission to the, the committee, uh, which was incredibly insightful in itself, raising many of these dangers that we've discussed um, that was there. Second, he presented an excellent paper at the Samuel Griffiths Society as well, where he talked about the very words of reconciliation were, were undefined and therefore would be open to a high court to, to make a very broad interpretation as to what they considered fell within the ability to make reconciliation. Did it grant special privileges? And he used various examples overseas uh, of where that has various doctrines have been interpreted into their constitutional law, whether it's in New Zealand or Canada, which we don't have in Australia, and therefore the risk that that entails. And then his third one intervention, as you said, was, was uh, that this could potentially broaden the powers uh, of the Commonwealth because, let's say, for instance, the examples that come up is uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, the voice would make recommendations, which it has said, and certainly people have in the context of this debate, said, no, we need criminal justice reform. So if the voice made representations that there be criminal justice reform, which, as we know, is a state responsibility, well, the Commonwealth could, as you say, take that on board, legislate, You'd have two heads of power, the Commonwealth parliamentary power plus the voice power, so you'd have two. Then you only need the third one, the High Court, to adjudicate that that's all fine. And then the fourth power, which is the state, would be completely overridden. Um, so, you know, I think that was a very another very serious risk. At the end of the day, we all know nobody knew how this would be interpreted by the court until it went to the court. And we also know, as history tells us, the court often changes its view um, but over time, it almost inevitably seeks to centralise power in the hands of the Commonwealth. And, and Commonwealth say? institutions and Commonwealth bodies seek a greater and greater power, so no doubt the voice would have further entrenched national power at the Commonwealth level. And as you say, David, uh, this was a separate new chapter, the first new Correct. chapter in the Constitution. I actually had a look at the number of words, and the number of words was half that, almost half that, of the smallest chapter in the Constitution, which was the miscellaneous chapter. So the High Court was getting this very, getting a few words in a brand new chapter, which would encourage, would it would compel the court to make the law up. Uh, I, uh, that's perhaps uh, a wrong way of putting it. The court would have to fill in the gaps which are obviously there in the words in the, in the chapter. It would have been a, a dangerous result. I also joined that with another constitutional reform which doesn't need a, a, a referendum. 
and that is the number of senators representing the territories. And there is on the agenda of the government a proposal to increase the number of senators for the territories. That would produce, I would think, if, for example, you had six senators for each territory, that would produce an overwhelming majority for a hard left government with the potential to get so much more jurisdiction from the voice. We have a very serious situation, a serious change, I would have thought, in the constitution of the Commonwealth, in our arrangements. And I think the Australian people smelt a rat. They might not have been exactly sure of what was going on, but they knew something was wrong, as they did, I thought, with the, uh, the Republic referendum, when what was proposed was to replace our crowned republic with a politician's republic. Is that, is that your feeling, that, that this had great dangers? Oh, it, it absolutely had great dangers. And, and John Howard, is, who, who's obviously been through highs and lows, uh, he's experienced it all, but he always used to say that, say that the, the, the public, the punters, get it right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think uh, they, they saw it for what it was. They saw it as a race divisive approach that was highly risky and far more radical, far more radical in design than a lot of the Yes campaigners were wanting to tell the broader public. Of course, they were happy to tell their activist left-wing base that it was a very radical change, but not the general public. Um, and, and they saw through that. Um, and we also know, I think, David, um, whether it's the, the politicians' republic, um, whether it's um, anything that involves giving politicians more power, the general public, when they're asked those questions, are highly sceptical. And they generally say, no thanks. We'll keep the power in our hands and you don't need any more. You've got more than enough. So I think any, any constitutional attempt to in, empower politicians and Canberra, the Canberra elite, uh, at the expense of the public will be rejected by the Australian public. Well, on that point, unfortunately, uh, we must uh, conclude this interview. You've been very generous with your time, David. This is a wonderful book and uh, I would encourage people to go to Connor Court, Dignity and Prosperity, The Future of Liberal Australia, very well worth reading. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, David, for having me on. It's a great pleasure. Good. And this is ADH TV. I'm David Flint. The program is Save the Nation, produced by Charlie Noble. Until next time, thank you.